In December of 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte had only been the head of France's government for a year, but some people already wanted him dead. In this episode of Footnoting History, we cover a failed attempt at assassinating the future emperor. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you about my favorite historical family, the Bonapartes, and a time when some of Napoleon's detractors made themselves known very loudly. On December 24th, 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte was at home. That is to say, he was in Paris, France, at the Tuileries Palace. The palace was located on the right bank of the River Seine, and although it isn't there now, if you can imagine the Museum of the Louvre, you can get an idea of where the palace used to stand. At this point, Napoleon was still four years away from being crowned emperor. Instead, his current title was First Consul. This means he was one of three men who were supposed to head the French government together. In theory, this was a title meant to eventually change hands. But because this was 200 years ago, we know that that never happened. Napoleon would eventually work his way from first consul for a specific term to first consul for life and ultimately to emperor. But as I said, this progression was still in the future. Now, Napoleon was relatively new to power, having only worn the first consul title for a year. You see, following the end of the Reign of Terror, that period of the French Revolution where you were lucky if you didn't lose your head, a government formed in France called the Directorate. This governing body, in Napoleon's estimation, was not good enough, and he thought that he could do better. So, in November of 1799, he staged a coup. Virtually overnight, the Directorate was relegated to being just another overthrown government in France's history. The consulate was formed, and Napoleon was at its head. The time after the coup was a very busy one. The consulate was made official through a new constitution. But a new government does not automatically end old wars, and Napoleon's coup occurred smack in the middle of one between France and a coalition of European powers, including Britain and the Austrians. As a member of France's military prior to the coup, and a military man till the end of his days, Napoleon knew that there were still battles to be won, so he returned to the field in a campaign that culminated in a victory over the Austrians at Marengo. He began peace negotiations with them, while also making diplomatic agreements with both the United States and Spain and seeking to improve relations with Russia. On the home front, the consulate enacted regulations such as putting a limit on how long a person could be held without trial and starred a national bank. Napoleon also began to work on religion. France had been at odds with the Catholic Church since it was suppressed during the heyday of the revolution. So, here too, negotiations were quietly started with the aim of repairing relations with the church. You began to see Catholic worship allowed more often, and priests became more prevalent in Paris. There were a myriad of other things going on as well, but this is just a snippet to show you that Napoleon was anything but complacent in his new role, not that it means that everybody approved of his actions. Which brings us back to Christmas Eve 1800. On this night, Paris was abuzz, because there was an oratorio going to be performed, Haydn's Creation. 
The Bonaparte party gathered at the palace with the intention of attending, though decades later Napoleon's stepdaughter Hortense would recall that Napoleon was not particularly enthusiastic about the outing. The group was split between two carriages. In the first was Napoleon and several male members of his entourage. In the second was Josephine, Hortense, Napoleon's sister Caroline, who was heavily pregnant, and Jean Rapp, one of Napoleon's aides-de-camp. Napoleon's carriage left first, with Josephine's not leaving for another few minutes. Why, you ask? Because of a wardrobe issue. Apparently, right before leaving, Josephine caused a brief delay while an adjustment to her shawl was made. Once everything was set to rights, the carriage went on its way, following the same route as Napoleon's, but not immediately behind it. What should have been an unexciting, short ride from the palace to the theater ended up being anything but. As the carriages came upon the Route Saint-Niquez, which doesn't exist anymore, there was a terrible explosion. It sent a vicious shock through the street. In Josephine's carriage, everybody was safe, though there was a mercifully unnecessary period of concern for Caroline because of her pregnancy. Hortense suffered some cuts from broken glass, but otherwise, everyone was safe and unharmed even if the carriage was damaged. They were immediately then concerned for Napoleon, since they had no idea what his status was. What they did know was that all around them was a disaster area. Multiple people were killed by the blast, while more were injured. The carnage was appalling, and property damage was extensive. Josephine was upset and frantic about her husband's fate, shaken by her own proximity to the explosion, and likely also distraught over the devastation outside. As soon as she learned that her husband was not only unscathed, but had also, believe it or not, continued on to the theater, her carriage followed suit. Rather miraculously, the explosion somehow happened after Napoleon had passed it and before they did. It was a lucky break for the Bonapartes, but certainly not for those on the streets. Once at the theater, they found Napoleon in perfect health and far less agitated than his wife. He had every intention of avoiding a fuss and sitting through the creation performance as if it was any other night, though Hortense would later write that he was incredibly disquieted when he received the full reports about the injuries and fatalities that occurred out of a desire to eliminate him. Of course, despite Napoleon's desire to keep things quiet, word did spread through the venue. After all, there had been a destructive explosion in the center of the city. One could hardly expect anyone to remain oblivious. But it didn't stop the Bonapartes from presenting a mostly united, calm front in their seats. I say mostly because, by all accounts I've read, Josephine had the hardest time putting her game face on and pretending that they had not almost just died. Still, the effort was appreciated, because once the audience was aware of their near miss, the consul and his family were cheered for escaping disaster. Later, Napoleon and his party returned to the palace for briefings and meetings. Unfortunately for the performers, who nobody ever really talks about, I highly doubt that many people attending that night actually were able to focus on the oratorio. At this point, it's a good idea to talk about Napoleon's ability to put on that mask of calmness in the immediate aftermath of an assassination attempt, because it is somewhat remarkable. I mean, one reason he could do this, of course, was because of his experience leading in the military. 
we can also be sure that he knew how bad it would look, not to mention the hysteria it would cause, if he gave the impression to the public that he was shaken and everything was not under control. The panic of a leader would not exactly inspire the confidence of his people. But for our purposes, we should note that though this attack was the most severe, it was not his first brush with an attempted assassination. Yes, in only one year of power, there was more than one attempt on his life. Annoyed rumblings are always going to exist when someone takes power for himself, and Napoleon's coup was not the exception to this. Plots and plans were being uncovered on a fairly regular basis. Outside of the Christmas Eve attempt, the other most notable incident took place only two months before in October. This assassination plot was built around the intention of stabbing him on a night at the theater, but it was foiled. With these two plans so close together, it's a wonder Napoleon ever attended a performance of anything ever again. 1800 was clearly not his best theater-going year. But back to December. As word spread of the Christmas Eve explosion, it became clear that it was the result of a bomb planted on a cart along the anticipated travel route. This device became known as the Infernal Machine. While the October plot was truly targeting Napoleon himself, the plotters who created the Infernal Machine and planted it in the middle of a populated street that was definitely going to have people there who wanted to see the First Consul and his wife pass, surely knew that whether or not they successfully assassinated Napoleon, many other lives would be lost. There was no disagreement that this was a severe issue. So, who were the people most likely to be moved to such an action? There are two groups on which the suspicion immediately fell, the Jacobins and the Royalists. The Jacobins were those who had no love for the monarchy of the past and were instrumental in supporting the French Revolution and the guillotine-crazed Reign of Terror. They did not support Napoleon's coup or his new form of leadership, and they knew what it felt like to be in power, since, not too long ago, they enjoyed dominance in French revolutionary politics. Napoleon may have wanted the people of France to feel like the revolution was over, but its ideals lived on in the Jacobin circles. The royalists were also unimpressed with Napoleon. He had no intention of restoring the Bourbon dynasty, which to them was incredibly unacceptable. They wanted their kings and queens back. While many royalists had fled to England long ago, there were still a good number in France and some of them were no less afraid to rise up than the Jacobins, and had been doing so since the revolution toppled the monarchy, suppressed Catholicism, and changed the France they knew. They were particularly willing to do so with funds given to them by Britain, because Britain also enjoyed the idea of removing Napoleon, since they had been embroiled in a war with France practically since the outbreak of the revolution, and would remain so until peace was reached in 1802. So as long as you aren't Napoleon himself, it's kind of funny to think that these two groups, the Jacobins and the likely British-backed royalists, so diametrically opposed in everything they believed, were each potentially responsible for trying to kill him, even if it was for different reasons. I guess it becomes a matter of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, two people, or groups of people, with incredibly different ideas, 
both thrilled with the idea of maybe getting rid of Napoleon. So then, who did it? And also, does it really matter? It might seem like asking if it mattered is a bit odd, but a look at the events following the Christmas Eve assassination plot indicates that the fact that there was a nearly successful attack was more important in and of itself than who specifically planned it. It was, as they say, the last straw. Motivated by this event, Napoleon used it to stage a political purge. Although the government investigation traced the explosive plot to the royalists, Napoleon saw the Jacobins as the greater long-term threat. In fact, when comparing the two groups, he said that while the royalists were a skin disease, the Jacobins were an internal infection, and it became his goal to clear that infection out. He did this by rounding up 130 known Jacobins in January of 1801. Though they were innocent of the crime of planting the machine on the cart with the intention of killing Napoleon on the way to the theater, he pointed out that they had other crimes of which they were guilty in relation to the revolution, including being in decision-making roles during the Reign of Terror. And some of them, who seemed to have less criminal records, or lesser criminal records, I should say, they got included in there too, because this was a mass roundup. To get rid of these Jacobins, who Napoleon called terrorists, he deported them. They were sent to Guiana, a place known for its climate being so brutal that it earned the nickname the Dry Guillotine. That sounds delightful. This, of course, doesn't mean that the royalists got away with it. Those who could be traced to a part in the plot, who totaled in number less than 10% of the amount of Jacobins rounded up, had a meeting with the actual guillotine not too long after the first purge. Message sent. Napoleon believed that you don't survive multiple attempts at assassination by sitting back and being afraid to retaliate, nor do you retain power by letting threats remain active, and you certainly don't gain people's confidence by showing fear. Though he would always be extra cautious about revealing his movements in advance, and he would be extra vigilant about security, the Jacobin Purge in particular, at least in Napoleon's mind, dealt with the present situation in a way as beneficial to the consulate as possible. The early days of his regime were indeed fragile, and so his reaction to the largest near-successful attack against him was harsh, and it ranged broader than just those actually guilty of the crime. Napoleon would never know a time when everyone liked him, There would be more plots, more wars, and he would be exiled twice. But in the aftermath of Christmas Eve 1800, he made two things very clear. He had no intention of going anywhere, and the world better allow him to attend the theater in peace. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.